It's a pleasure to be here today with Dr. Yagane and Dr. Kirian, my colleagues from the Department of Public Health, to talk about holiday safety and vaccination boosters. So, Dr. Yagane and Dr. Kirian, welcome to the LA Public Health Podcast. Thank you. The holidays are practically here. As this episode drops, it's early November. Thanksgiving is around the corner. Fall is in the air. Thanksgiving meals and family celebrations will be happening in a matter of weeks. I'll start with Dr. Kirian. What are some precautions that I should take when hosting people for the holidays in my home? Can I celebrate the holidays with members of my family that may be unvaccinated? Sure, Steve. That's a really good question. So I think there's a couple of things that folks can consider as they get their holiday planning in place. It's sort of generally important to think about what you you and your family's sort of level of risk might be and in what conditions COVID-19 can spread more easily. And those conditions are spaces where you have, you know, more like closed in spaces with poor airflow or poor air ventilation or crowded places where there's a lot of people nearby, settings where you have a lot of close contact, especially situations where people are talking or laughing or singing or screaming, anything where they're sort of breathing really heavily close together. And this is especially true, I think, for any unvaccinated individuals in the household or people that might be attending these gatherings. It's really sort of important to kind of understand that those are the conditions where COVID can spread more easily and then work backwards from there and try and create your planning to avoid or minimize those type of situations or and settings. In terms of celebrating with unvaccinated family members, of course, as much as possible, you want to try and encourage your family members to get vaccinated if they can, because it really is, you know, one of the best ways to protect against COVID-19. But if they can't, if you are planning a gathering with them, important to maybe, in addition to some of the things that we just talked about, consider other ways that they can help protect themselves, like creating situations where you have, you know, opportunities for people to as much as possible keep their distance. So have your your gathering in, in a more spread out location. If it's an indoor setting, should be wearing their mask. And important to really make sure that that mask is well fitted, covering their nose and mouth except for when they're actively eating or drinking. And then, of course, other infection control uh, practices that are universally important, you know, like washing your hands. And, of course, vaccinated or not, if folks are sick, really reminding them it's important for their health and the health of others to stay home. And this could be whether they have symptoms or if they tested positive for COVID or if they were unvaccinated and had close contact to someone who was positive for COVID. So those are all a couple of things that folks could consider as they start doing their planning around um, holiday activities. Are there other mitigation strategies around ventilation that we should be thinking about? I keep hearing about the use of fans in particular. We talked about in our last episode, and actually thank you for coming on the show again, Dr. Yagene. You were on our last episode, which dropped October 5th, about schools, kids, and COVID. And in that episode, we talked about the use of fans in classrooms. And I'm wondering if that's a strategy that could work in the home, too. 
Yeah, it's great to be back here. I think that ventilation is definitely something that's being more and more looked at um, and how we can improve ventilation. So the easiest and the cheapest and the best way is to move things outwards, like Dr. Kikorian said. So if you can if you can be outside, if you're in Southern California and you're able to be outside, please choose that option. That's the safest way and it's the least expensive way. After that, of course, is opening windows, um, trying to increase air circulation in your house by just creating fresh air from coming in. So I often think of age of air. So you want fresh air. You don't want um, stagnant old air to be sitting around. Fans. So fans have been discussed by the CDC and other different groups. And the idea of fans is that it would somehow remove stagnant air from the room. So you would want something like a window fan where it would be able to remove the air from inside the room and allow for fresh air to come in. So it's really important to think about it, and I think there is CDC guidance on it and how you can improve the ventilation in your rooms. There's also HEPA filters, of course. HEPA filters, they're a little bit more costly. Getting a good unit can cost up to like $500. You can get maybe smaller units that, you know, would work best for smaller spaces. But these are all different ways that you can improve the ventilation. The best way, of course, is to be outside if you can. So especially if you're concerned about people in your family who are not vaccinated yet, people who are elderly or who are immune systems are working as well, trying to decrease crowding, opening windows, opening doors, and staying you know, outside as much as possible are the best way. Right. So with those fans, it's, it's actually blowing the air outside, right? In the summer, you want the air blowing on you. With COVID protection, move the old air outside. It's like drawing it out, allowing outdoor air to come in, that kind of process. You don't want to accidentally blow air from one person to another person because that's how you spread infection. The real goal is to, like, try to replace the air. Got it. Dr. Kieran, what about travel? People travel over the holidays. People get on airplanes. Portions of my family may be traveling back east. What do you recommend about in terms of getting on an airplane? Should we be getting, like, a COVID test before we get on an airplane? What kind of mask should we wear on an airplane? What do you recommend in terms of travel? Sure. I think one of the important things is, if at all possible, to sort of delay travel until you are fully vaccinated. Again, being that vaccination is one of the best ways to protect yourself against COVID in in any situation. So if you are vaccinated, um, and this would be, you know, through an FDA authorized vaccine or even those that are approved for emergency use by the World Health Organization. So if you've got folks traveling in from other countries into the United States to visit you, it would be important in terms of the mask, of course, wearing a mask over your, your nose and mouth, which is required on planes, I think, on pretty much any form of transportation. So buses, trains, anything else that you might be traveling on to get to your final destination, wearing a mask would be important, not only in that transportation, but also in the transportation hub. So like at the airports or stations, so any indoor spaces, wearing that mask that covers your nose and mouth is going to be important. And, of course, it's going to be important for folks to make sure that they follow any sort of local, state, or, you know, more local jurisdictional recommendations that they might have around requirements for travel, mask wearing, social distancing. So, unfortunately, it's what people do here in L.A. County may not be what they do in other places or what's required in other places. So it's important to just generally be aware of what those recommendations are And then, of course, it's always a good idea, whether it's recommended in your local jurisdiction or not, to make sure to wear your mask if you're going to be in indoor spaces or especially crowded areas. In terms of testing, 
Currently, what the CDC is recommending is that for those folks who are not vaccinated, they do get tested at least one to three days before they travel and then get tested again about three to five days after their travel. And of course, also, you know, self-quarantine for seven days, but then self-quarantine for 10 days if you don't do any of these testing. So I know it's a little, it's a little complicated. The CDC does have this really nice little infographic that they offer up that kind of outlines exactly what to do if you're vaccinated or not vaccinated. For folks who are fully vaccinated, there's no recommendation currently around the testing before or after. It's just mainly about self-monitoring for symptoms and then wearing a mask and taking other precautions. I will caveat that, though, by saying different airlines and, again, different countries will have their own recommendations around travel guide restrictions and their own requirements for testing. So it's important for folks to make sure that they understand those rules before they travel, because, again, what might be required here in the U.S. may not be the same in another country, nor may it be what's recommended by a particular airline that you might be taking. So important to check those different sources out before you travel. Did I get all of your different? I think you did. Yeah, sorry, I threw a lot at you with that one. I'll try to limit the multiple choice questions that I give you. Maybe we can link in the show notes to the CDC infographic on travel. I think that would be really useful. So you can just scroll up in your podcast player up to the show notes and then link directly to that. We'll put a a hot link to that. Both of you have said multiple times the number one way to be safe during the holidays is to, number one, make sure you're vaccinated. And it just reminded me, I want to go back to our last episode in the podcast. Dr. Gilchek said the top three ways that adults can protect themselves are, number one, to get your vaccine. Number two, make sure you get your vaccination. And number three, just go get vaccinated. So (laughs) get the vaccine immediately. And I wonder if that's a good place for us to transition to talking a little bit more about the vaccines in particular. Currently, the COVID-19 vaccines we have available are approved for adults and children age 12 and up. But Dr. Yagena, many parents are still concerned for their child's safety and are reluctant to allow their child to receive it. Can you talk about how safe the COVID vaccines are for children? So I think that this is a really understandable concern. People want to make sure that the product they're giving their children is safe and is effective. And so this is something of great interest to all of us here at DPH, but also, you know, myself as a parent. Yes, definitely. We are looking at this data. So as many of you know, the vaccine has been studied in you know, more than 100,000 people, but now we've given it to, I think, more than 500,000 adolescents, 12 to 17 years of age here in Los Angeles County. And what we're really doing is looking at any sort of adverse reactions. And so we're doing this on a national level through the Vaccine Adverse Events Reporting System. We're also looking at reports here in the county itself. And so if there's any concerns for adverse events, we are tracking them. We're trying to really do a deep dive and figure out what they are and if they're related to the vaccine. The adverse events that can be related to the vaccine are rare. The two are anaphylaxis, so that's uh, having a severe allergic reaction. That seems to happen relatively rarely, um, you know, more like in the order of several in a million. 
So your chance is very, very low of anaphylaxis, but that's why we monitor every child for 15 minutes after they receive their vaccine. And that's true for adults as well. We monitor everyone for at least 15 minutes after they receive the vaccine. If you have a history of having a severe allergic reaction, we monitor you for longer. So that's one way that we try to make sure that no one has this reaction untreated and that we're able to recognize and treat it right away. And again, it's a really rare adverse reaction, but we do monitor for it. The second one is the myocarditis, pericarditis. That Again, now we're collecting data from all over the world on this. It seems like it happens about 20 per million or 0.0002%. So again, a really, really unlikely reaction. Um, it seems to happen in young men under the age of 40 with their second dose of an mRNA vaccine. And again, really uncommon, but if you do have symptoms of a racing heart or chest pain, there is treatment that's available. Usually people do really well with rest, some hydration. Some people do need to take some medicine for it. Some do need to be evaluated in a hospital setting. But again, this is something that we know about. We're monitoring individuals who get vaccinated for, and if they should have this really, really rare adverse event, we can treat them. As far as other adverse events, we really have not found any. And again, now we've given the vaccine to millions of 12 to 18-year-old children. So we really have been watching, we're monitoring. We have been very fortunate in that the vaccines have been extremely safe. This is something that we will continue to monitor over the next months. Here in Los Angeles County, I think we're now above 70% of 12 to 17-year-olds that have received one dose of the vaccine. So I think more and more parents want to protect their children, and they want to make sure that they get to do all these different things like traveling and doing sporting activities and being able to attend school without needing to worry about being quarantined, all these different benefits that come with being fully vaccinated. That's great to know that it's so safe. I'll just follow up with a question for either one of you. How likely is it we are to have a vaccine that will be approved for children younger than 12, say, before Thanksgiving? I think that it looks like the chances are good. Um, it's hard to have that magic ball into the future. But um, we do think that Pfizer has submitted the the information to the Food and Drug Administration. The Food and Drug Administration is right now reviewing the data. They are having a meeting on October 26th to review the data. They will take a vote, and then it will be handed off to the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices. They'll review all the data as well and make some formal recommendations. So hopefully early November, we'll have um, some vaccine for the 5 to 11-year-olds. Now, will people be fully vaccinated by Thanksgiving? Unfortunately, they won't, um, because as if you remember, it's a two-dose vaccine. You get the first dose, then 21 days later, you get the second dose, and then two weeks after the second dose, you are fully vaccinated. So it takes up to five weeks. So when it is available, I hope that everyone will go ahead and get it so they will be fully vaccinated for the winter breaks and for end of December time. But I don't think we're going to be able to fully vaccinate our 5 to 11-year-olds by Thanksgiving. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. And listeners, we recommend definitely keeping up with the latest and greatest on our website, publichealth.lacounty.gov. And we can also um, include a link to that site in the show notes so you know exactly where to go to keep up with the latest and greatest information about the availability of vaccinations for your child, which reminds me to talk about boosters. There's so much progress being made on this. And I'm wondering, Dr. Kieran, if maybe you can tell us a little bit about what boosters are and why do we need a booster if the vaccines work? 
Sure. So I'll start kind of with maybe a little bit of that second part of the question about the fact that, you know, why boosters are needed if vaccines work and just comment really quickly on the fact that it's important for folks to know that the COVID-19 vaccines do continue to be remarkably effective in reducing our risk of especially severe disease and hospitalization and is also very effective against the Delta variant. Like I said, we do continue to see that because it is highly protective against hospitalizations and severe outcomes, we want to encourage people to make sure that they go out and get vaccinated. But what public health experts are starting to see is that there is some signs of reduced protection against infection and mild to moderate disease, and this is more so among certain populations. As we learn more, our vaccine recommendations also evolve, and that's one of the reasons the conversations around boosters have come up as we start to see some of this data around the waning protection against this mild to moderate disease. It's also important to know that boosters are a common phenomena around a lot of different vaccines, not just COVID-19. And the intention, again, is to really make sure that the immunity that folks receive from their primary series from, you know, a vaccine, if it wanes over time, it may benefit from having sort of a boost by having an additional dose of vaccine that might help your immune system regain some of that level of protection that may have just waned over time. So, again, really important for folks to remember that these vaccines have been super effective, especially around the outcomes that we really want to avoid, like the hospitalizations and death, and they continue to be so even now. It's really just trying to provide some additional protection around some of the more milder aspects of the disease that you know lends itself to improved protection with a booster. Is there a difference, Dr. Yagana, between a booster and a third dose? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, there's a lot of terminology that's out there, so it's good to clarify exactly what we mean by everything. So a booster, really, that Dr. Green was talking about, is something that boosts your immune system. It's kind of like one of the ones that I think of as Tdap. Um, it's a tetanus booster where, you know, your immune system, your immunity is falling, so you get this booster, and it's kind of like a, hey, wake up the immune system call to remind you guys, our body, to form antibodies and to be active again. But uh, the third dose is a little bit different. The third dose is really meant for people who are severely immune you know, compromised, their immune system isn't working as normal, so they might not respond to the first two doses. So, you know, they get the first dose and second dose, and instead of having this robust immune response, they don't. They don't form the antibodies. Their T cells aren't activated, so they really need that third dose. And about, you know, half to a little bit more than half will respond to that third dose and then have an antibody response. So it's really meant to be given about 28 days after your second dose. So if you got, you know, Moderna or Pfizer, 28 days after your second dose, you would get another full dose. And that that's something important because the Moderna booster is actually a half dose. Like most likely will be a half dose, whereas the third dose will be a full dose. So it's just another dose of the exact same vaccine that you got to help encourage your immune system to respond. And it's, again, for people who have um, an immunocompromised situation. And so it's for people who have had chemotherapy, who've had a solid organ transplant, who have autoimmune disorders and are taking medicine that suppress their immune system, they would qualify for the third dose. Thank you. That was a great explanation. The recommendations around this are evolving. As I mentioned previously, it's October 20th as we record There are meetings happening in the next few days. We will learn more about the recommendations that roll out nationally. How will people know whether or not they're eligible for a third dose? Some are eligible right now as we record. Is that right, Dr. Kieran? I mean, I think Pfizer has been approved for a third dose for some, correct? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, yeah. So I think there are recommendations around who qualifies for third dose, and we have that information posted on our website. People can go to the CDC and see sort of the general conditions that are recommended for a third dose. And of course, if they look at these websites and they don't really identify something that matches what their medical condition is, it would be highly recommended that they speak to their healthcare provider. There is language that also allows for healthcare providers to make some uh, judgments about whether a person qualifies as being immunocompromised and qualifying for a third dose. So, again, you know, it would be important for folks to have those conversations with their healthcare provider and make a joint decision about whether a third dose would be recommended for them. That makes a lot of sense. Always talk to your doctor if you're unsure, right? That's a pretty safe recommendation. Okay. This begs a question for me. We, We were talking about that prior to Thanksgiving it might be challenging for kids to be fully vaccinated because there's a a time gap between the first and the second shot. And so made me think of what it means to be fully vaccinated in regard to a third shot or a booster. In other words, if people require a booster, will that change the definition of what it means to be fully vaccinated? Yeah, so uh, right now our definition of a fully vaccinated individual is unchanged. So a fully vaccinated individual is someone who's received both doses of an mRNA vaccine and then two weeks after. So after you receive your second dose, two weeks after, you would be fully vaccinated. And then with Johnson & Johnson Janssen, you would receive the one dose. And then two weeks after that, you would be considered fully vaccinated. So I think that the boosters are not changing our definition of fully vaccinated at this point. More to come on that, I'm sure. Now, what if I don't fall into any of the categories that qualify for a booster, but I still feel like I want to get one? Is there any harm, Dr. Kirian, in going to my local CVS and telling them, I want a booster? You know, there's a few things to consider. So I guess, you know, there's some risk that can arise both to the provider and the patient in doing what's considered off-label use of the COVID-19 vaccines. Someone who does not qualify or fit into some of these categories, they go ahead and do it they would be considered using the COVID-19 vaccine off-label. For example, say something goes wrong, a provider could get sued by patients if there was some sort of injury that occurred related to that off-label use. Normally, there are some legal protections that providers have when functioning under their emergency use authorization or under authorized use of vaccines which may not be there when when something's used off-label. So there are those risks. The provider would also potentially be considered to be violating the provider agreements that are in place. It's an agreement that they signed with the CDC to be able to give out the COVID-19 vaccines. And so, again, if they are found to regularly be using off-label application of the COVID-19 vaccine, they could be in violation of those agreements and are at risk for potentially being kicked out of the program. So that's another consideration that providers should keep in mind. The other thing is that the cost of administering the vaccines is free to patients. And insurance companies don't bill patients for any of that. Again, under sort of an off-label use, folks may not have the same sort of protections. There might be um, some possibility of of getting some bills related to, you know, the off-label use of the vaccines. Any last thoughts as we begin to wrap up? Maybe I'll start with you, Dr. Yagene. Any any last bits of advice that you have as we lead into the holidays and so much information out there for the public? to digest 
along with their holiday meals. What are your recommendations for families moving forward in the holiday season? I think that I am just so grateful that we are where we are compared to last year at this time. You know, we have three incredible vaccines that are available. We have some therapeutics. We are able to, once again, enjoy some of the things that we were doing with our families before the pandemic started. Very, very grateful for having these vaccines and having these opportunities to stay healthy, but also that um, so much of L.A. County has gotten on board and is vaccinated and that our case rates are on the downward slope and we are able to do so much more this year. So just very grateful. Dr. Kirian, I'll ask you the same. Any final thoughts? Sure. I'll echo a lot of what Dr. Yagana said. And I'll say, you know, I think, again, a lot of how we got here was through folks kind of recognizing the importance of vaccinating themselves and and what that means to protecting themselves and protecting their families. We have come such a tremendously long way and uh, we are we're in a really wonderful place and it's so important that we keep going in that trajectory. And so however we can continue to encourage our loved ones to get vaccinated if they can continues to be really important conversations that we should continue to have, especially as we meet them around the holiday table. And, uh, yeah, as we get more information about boosters, important for people to make sure that they keep abreast of that information as well and continue to get vaccinated. Dr. Sarah Kiri and Dr. Navi Yagana, thank you so much, both of you, for, for being on the show tonight. I really appreciate your time today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This episode of L.A. Public Health was produced by the Los Angeles County Department of Public Health. Our department is nationally accredited by the Public Health Accreditation Board and is committed to protecting and improving the health of over 10 million residents in Los Angeles County. For more information about DPH programs and services, visit publichealth.lacounty.gov and follow us on social media at LA Public Health. My name is Steve Baldwin, and you've been listening to the LA Public Health Podcast.